Thank you, Roma, and I want to thank uh, Professor uh, Abbas Milani for inviting me here, and I'm glad to hear that it's an, it's an evening of uh, this match between the university with Stanford and Homa uh, Sarshar, her husband who is here, having the archives of the Sarshars here. I think it's a, it's a wonderful thing for them and wonderful thing for the university. And we at Tel Aviv University also benefited from having some of the oral history, the oral history of the. So sorry, but I think the people in the back are having a hard time hearing. This room doesn't have a mic. If we can ask you to project as loud as possible. Okay, it's uh, 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 and I'm glad to be here again at, at Stanford. Uh, the topic uh, is uh, Iran, Israel, and the United States: the changing Middle East. By my main. Uh, focus would be on Iran, and through the prism of Iran, I also look at uh, my own country, Israel, and the, and the United States, and in the changing Middle East, and it's a lot has been, is being changed recently. Uh, let me begin with the obvious, uh, I think, that uh, to make clear we understand that Iran is a very complex country. Many people think it's totally white, some all in many other things it's totally, totally black, and there are so many different faces to Iran, and in any given time you can see different attitudes and different uh, ideological and political preferences uh, within Iran. Uh, maybe the best way to uh, uh, explain it or to demonstrate it uh, they manage, uh, and I'm working on Iran many years, and maybe over 40 years, and they recently managed to surprise me again, uh, publishing a book of mine that was mentioned here uh, on Iranian education in trans Persian translation into Iran by a very distinguished uh, publication house, Hekmat, and in collaboration with the Supreme uh, in, uh, uh, Supreme Council of Cultural Revolution. Now, whoever knows what is the Supreme Council of, uh, of uh, Cultural Revolution, which is the most, one of the most radical organizations in Iran, would be surprised to hear that they translated a book by an Iranian professor, let alone describing it as the best book on Iranian education endorsing the conclusions. Some of them clearly specifically say that the Cultural Revolution was bad and failure. <laughs> uh, of course, they deleted all reference to be me being an Israeli. Uh, all the thanks that I gave to my good friends in Israel have been deleted. Even the book was dedicated to my wife, uh, and they deleted this as well. But in this case, my wife was not uh, very unhappy because I told her that instead, instead of the dedication to her on the same page, they put Bismillah Rahman Rahim. So I think she was even pleased uh, to to see it. So uh, and then there are other things that is being recorded. I don't. But those who will read the preface that they added and the conclusions that they added to it uh, would be surprised to see who are the people who initiated the translation. It's totally unbelievable. Uh, and in the conclusion, when I said that the Cultural Revolution stopped at the gate of the university, you know, they shut down, this same council shut down the universities for three years in, in Tehran, in Iran, 
to Islamize the curriculum and the university uh, faculty. And they reopened it. And again, the new education, modern education, has been really in place. This war that was in the late 19th century between the traditional Islamic education and modern Western education, Western education won. And the strength of Iran today is not only missiles and nuclear energy. The strength of Iran today is m even more due to the Iranian science and education, which is the universities are, and I spent two years in Iran doing studies from Tehran University on universities in Iran. And, and it's it started before the, the Islamic regime continues now. And I said that, that, that the Cultural Revolution failed, uh, and failed also in many other fields, the last, uh, they added, of course, the con conclusion or Natijegiri or what is the, will be uh, concluding remarks by the translators. By the way, the translation is wonderful, and I'm trying to find them now to translate the book that I will pay for it. I don't want to wait. <laughs> I don't want to wait 26 years for the other book to be published. Uh, his, his real translation was very good. No of course, there are mistakes in any translation, but nothing intentional to change the meaning of the work. So when I, and they quote me saying that the revolution is the cultural revolution is failure, and they said the, the last sentence is, uh, having read the book, we can say that the Islamic revolution not only stopped at the gate of the university, but it failed in many other fields and three dots. Uh, my conclusion is that it's part of their domestic infightings between the different camps and so on and so forth. But still, uh, uh, when, I, when I said that it's complex and not clear, the non, non, not, nothing that can be expected really, that's one of it. Iran is a country in which uh, the, the, the struggle, it's based on two major pillars, maybe two and a half. One is, one pillar is Persian culture that cannot be ignored. Uh, the other is the, the Islamic uh, faith, Shiite Islam in this particular case. And I say two and a half, the third is being added in the last two centuries is Western, Western culture. You cannot take Western culture out of the country. There are three of them combined to determine the essence of the Iranian uh, behavior, culture, uh, uh, and position in different, different areas. There's an ongoing struggle between religion and state. There is ongoing struggle between diff different concepts, mainly the Islam and the West. There is constant struggle between different camps within the revolutionary uh, machinery. When Khomeini came to power, there have been seven grand ayatollahs in Iran. None of them supported the philosophy of Ayatollah Khomeini. The number one ayatollah in Iran at that time, Shariat Madari, was put under house arrest until he passed away six years later. The man that Khomeini groomed to be his successor and nominated him officially to be this uh, successor as a as Vali Faqih, the supreme religious authority, was removed from grace just before Khomeini's death 
and was put under house arrest where he spent the last years of his life. Within the regime, the political uh, camps, you can, I don't know how you term them, but for the convenience of my talk, I speak to one camp as radicals, conservatives, extremists, or the other is pragmatists, some of them even liberal uh, and more moderate, if you want. But within each of them, there are so many different attitudes. So you cannot really say A and B. And some people have changed during the last 40 years. Some of the most radical people of the 80s have become the leading liberals, pragmatists in the 90s. I did a terrible mistake as an Iran expert. And in one of my books written in the late 80s, at the end, just to help the reader, I put a table with the affiliation of different personalities. This was maybe my main, main uh, mistake in, in the study of Iran. A decade after, when I wanted to use this book, and I say, well, these people are not the same. When you speak about uh, Hussein Mousavi is liberal, he's now in jail because he was, he was too liberal to them. He was radical in the 80s, as pr 80s of prime minister. Uh, if you look at other, other figures, and I don't have time, Mohtashamipur, Khalkhali, Khalkhali being a liberal or, or pragmatist, that's God forbid, he was the ex executors in the 80s. So what I'm trying to say that when you speak about these ideas, f uh, tendencies, factions, lines, they are accurate for the time that we will refer to them. And and things change. Also, they make statements in one uh, meaning uh, to Persian-speaking people, and then they speak what we say, uh, speeches for export to Westerners, different meanings. So I make this all as, as uh, I think, uh, to, to, to protect me from making all kind of statements that may sound bizarre. Maybe there are other things that will be bizarre regardless, but I think in this, this affiliation, it's very difficult. And as, as, a, as a background to my talk, I want to raise three questions that I think are important to understand Iran and its policy. Uh, what was this revolution about? I tend to believe, and I don't know some of you, I see that I've been in Iran at that time. Uh, I saw just the beginning of the revolution. And, uh, uh, and left the country. I came for two. I came for one year to do a study. But in Iran, you cannot do anything in one year. If you want to do serious uh, study in archives, you have to organize first the archives and then start working. You have to have connections, good connections, and thanks God I had at that time. Uh, but uh, but it took a longer time. I think the revolution was not about establishing Islamic regime. The Iranian Revolution, like any other major revolution that I know in history, had, was based on two targets, two aims, social justice and political justice. Life was bad, and people wished to give better life to their children. So it was, I can sum up, the revolution was about providing uh, bread and freedom, welfare and liberties. If this is correct, the stability of the regime does not depend on the, re the measure of return to Islam, but rather a degree to which the regime would be able to satisfy the initial 
wishes of the people of Iran. And so far, it has not yet accomplished much. There is no greater freedom in Iran today that used to be under the Shah, and the Shah was not a Democrat. I learned to appreciate democracy when I was in Iran. For the first time, as coming from a relatively to the region, democratic state, to come to Iran in one day, you understand this is the rules of the games are different. So uh, uh, it, the Shah was not a Democrat. But today, there is no much democracy. I was discussing it with a friend of mine from one of the Iranian universities. It is about this dichotomy between some measure of, of openness that exists from time to time, and uh, on the one hand, and the suppression that we see in Iran on other occasions. And he told me, it was for me a kind of eye-opener. You know, David, they tell you there is no freedom in Ir the freedom of expression in Iran, that's not true. We have freedom of expression. What we don't have is freedom after expression. <laughs> uh, so it is, uh, it, I think this, this explains the, the problem that the Iranian people feel of really not, this is not really freedom. And there is no better welfare for the poor people, I mean. For the rich, there was never a problem in Iran. And Iran is a country divided to poor and rich more than almost any country that I know. So the, the underprivileged society, the Mustazafun, Mustazafan, for which the revolution came, are not having much better. Uh, probably their life is better today, the means of living is better today, but the gap between them and the rich has not been narrowed. The second question is to what degree this ideo the ideology of revolution was Islamic. And again, I can be, must be very brief. There is no one understanding of Islam. There is nothing that you can call this is the Islam. Of course, there is the Quran, the Hadith. But we don't live today from what has been written 13th century, 14th centuries ago. We live today as Jews, Christians, uh, Muslims, by our interpretation today of the principles of faith of all the ancient time. And there is no one interpretation. The best way that I heard about it, it was one of the leading intellectuals of Iran, uh, Abdul Karim Soroush, who 20 year, more than 20 years ago said a sentence that for me remained in my mind all the time. He said, of course there is, no, there is one Islam, but but there is no one interpretation of Islam. There is no one interpretation that is better than other. There is no official interpretation of Islam. There can be no official interpretation of Islam. Namely, even the Islamic regime will tell you this is the interpretation. Uh, they, 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 they don't have even the right to say so. So the, the diversity, mainly in Shiite Islam, in which the gates of Ijtihad, the, the free interpretation is, is open compared with the Sunni Islam, which is closed, uh, it allows greater uh, diversity and in different interpretations. And the third question is to what degree the policy of Iran today is faithful to the uh, ideology with which this regime came to power. Well, I can say that in each, almost in each and every case, when there was a clash between interest and ideology, interest won over ideology. Probably the, the first question that the Islamic regime had to 
tackle with on foreign relations what what is the name of this gulf the dividing between the arabs and the and the persians all the world almost almost all used to call it until recently the gulf or uh, arabs call it the arab gulf only two nations call it the persian gulf without any hesitation iranians and israelis I know in the conferences when we came and we spoke about the Persian Gulf, the Iranian professors were so happy. They, don't they didn't find other people who called this Persian Gulf. And I'll come to it. We have history with Iran. It's the history of Israel, Jews in Iran did not start 40 years ago. Uh, so uh, Khomeini decided the Gulf should be called Persian Gulf. And there was an Ayatollah, very radical. I just mentioned his name two minutes ago, Ayatollah Khalkhali. Because America will call it Khalkhali. This man, can, I think it is, was the, 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 only, the only bright idea I heard from him. He came to Khomeini and suggested to him, let's call the Gulf the Gulf of the Muslims. And Khomeini refused. The same Khomeini who said there is no difference between Muslims, Turks, Arabs, Paluch, Afghans. They are all Muslims. They are all family, one family. The same man said the Gulf should be. And I mentioned from the early days of the revolution. Then you go to who can be president of Iran. He must be, while all are, the constitution said all Muslims are brothers, but the president of Iran must be uh, a Shiite of Iranian origin, Iran Yul Asl. And in the first presidential elections, one of the candidates, leading candidates, was Jalal Adin Farsi, Jalal Adin the Persian. Who, unlike Jalal Adin, Jamal Adin Afghani, who was Persian, Jalal Adin Farsi was disclosed four days before election that his father was born in, in Afghanistan. And Khomeini disqualified him. So I could go on and on. on so wherever they don't, they don't withdraw from ideology voluntarily. But when there is a clash between interests, and there is a heavy pay, uh, price to be paid for continuing your dogmatic principles, there is a degree of pragmatism and if you want moderation. Maybe the best example is Khomeini's acceptance uh, to, to accept the uh, ceasefire with Saddam Hussein, the man that he fought for eight years, who so many people have been killed. And then he said, remember his television, television statement, it would have been sweeter for me to drink poison. And in Persian, poison, poison sounds even more poisonous, Zaharimar or something <laughs> like that. So it's, it's easier for me, sweeter to drink poison than sign an agreement with Saddam Hussein, but we don't have a choice. <laughs> now, who is the interest of whom we are speaking about? And this is the tricky question. It can be interest of the revolution, interest of the state, interest of Islam, or interest of the supreme leader or the ruling elite. But for them, this is not a question because they are all the same. We are Islam. And therefore, interest of the supreme leader is interest of Islam. And to this, I will also come in a moment. Now, since you didn't come here to hear about history, but you happen to invite someone from school of history and students of history, so I have to put this in context. But in the last, uh, the, the last decade, 
mainly since the, the, the Arab Spring, there have been a series of change that the Middle East is not anymore the same that we have known before. Again, we don't have much time to go uh, to each and every of them, but I think that what we witnessed recently is the decline of pan-Arabism and Arab nationalism. This is a major, major level of change in the Middle East, influencing all other countries. It is also the failure of the nation-state system, the post-Westphalian uh, principle of nation-state has been challenged at least with Daesh, with the Arab Spring, with what happened in the Middle East. Uh, there are loyalties to subnational entities and to supranational entities, and the nation state is still valid, is still strong, 100 years after the establishment of the states, after the collapse of the Ottoman Empire, uh, they, are still, uh, they are still there, but it's not the same. The states are weak. And now how it influences each country. Let's take Israel, for example. For throughout the history of the state of Israel, the greatest fear of Israel was the strength of Arab states. Today, the greatest challenge to Israel is the weakness of the Arab strength. So this is, this is one example of, of the realities that have changed and creates new, new uh, attempts, at least, of alignments between Israel and Saudi Arabia, for example, which again has, has impact on Iran and Saudi Arabia, Iran and Israel. There is growing of frustration in the, among the Muslims about the realities of their life. If I quote uh, uh, Huntington, who say that the, the Muslims are convinced of the superiority of their, uh, let, me, let me see, the, 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 I think it started with the inferiority. Uh, Muslims are convinced of the superiority of their culture and are obsessed with the inferiority of their power. I think this continues to be the situation that the Muslim world is not, not that Islam is weaker, but the strength of the, the Islam. Islam was supposed to be the leading force in human history. This is the last of the three monotheistic religions. And the reality is that the West is more powerful and Israel is there. And for them, this is really difficult to digest. Because even for the Jews, I would say, the Jews were ex acceptable, tolerated minority under Islamic rule. What happened after 1967 or after 1948, that rather than the Jews be tolerated under Islamic rule, there are so many Muslims living under Jewish control. Without anything to do with your ide ideas about the rightness of Israel or the Arabs, this is, this is the base of the problem. That the, the world has gone really uh, the, the, uh, out of the rails. And there is also another change. It's, uh, and I want to limit to few issues. The strength, the emergence of Shiite Islam. Shiism have always been in the margins of the Muslim world. 
Even today, it's a minority, and I don't know how, what is the minority, it's 15% or something like that. To con uh, of course, in the Persian Gulf, there are much more. Uh, and we didn't know about Shiite Islam. When I was at college, uh, we, we didn't, we, and I studied Islam. We didn't learn anything about Shiite Islam. The first time I learned about Shiite Islam was in 1971, before the first time I came to Iran. It happened to be in Muharram during the Ashura. And I wrote my professors that what I learned in the books is not what I see in Iran. The strength, strength of religion, the attachment between the religious authorities and the people is totally different. And now, actually, for the first time, we see Shiism is emerging to a status that it has never had in the history of Islam. There is also change in the, in the superpowers and their policy in the Middle East. If you ask me which is the country that has made the greatest services to Iranian national interest, I don't have any hesitation to say it's the United States of America with its Western allies. The, for the, the first time in 1991, they crushed the military power of Saddam Hussein, the enemy number one with whom they fought for eight years with no success. He was crushed by the coalition led by the United States. In 2002, the Americans, with the co another coalition, or similar coalition, went to destroy the power of the Taliban, and they removed the Taliban. In 2002, the enemy number two. Here is the, the superpowers removed both wings, enemies of Iran, Iraq and Afghanistan. What else can you ask? Well, this is the services, the services of the great Satan. In 2003, they came back and completed the task removing Saddam Hussein. In 2015, they have given Iran one of the sweeter, sweetest gifts. It is the nuclear deal. Now, I must say that I was not against the nuclear deal. And I think that there is, but yet I think there is so many problems with this. But the nuclear deal has recognized Iran as a nuclear power. It's recognized the Islamic Republic of Iran. I think it was the first time that mentions this explicit name, the Islamic Republic of Iran. Uh, and open it, give, unfreeze the, uh, the, the, sanction, the, the sanctions, and allowed Iran to emerge and did not say anything on Iranian policy on two key issues that I thought is very vital to tackle. Human rights in Iran, there is nothing of human rights, I'm not speaking about women's rights, but women are also human, okay, that's uh, included, <laughs> included. And nothing about the regional policy of Iran. While Iran is, the, is emerging power in Syria, in Lebanon, in Gaza, in the West Bank, in Yemen, in Iraq, there is nothing about this. But still, the Iranians claimed at the same time that the call debt to America is part of the DNA of the Islamic Revolution. Come on, you are given this, this new reality. Stop with your nuclear weapon and start a new chapter. And in the <coughs> world life, where is Roma? Where I have to press this. The people in humanities are not good in uh, technology. <laughs> 
Okay, this is the one, yes. This appears in the website of Ayatollah Khamenei. Moshte Ahanin, the Iron Fist. And I'm not going to say what they said about, this is immediately after the nuclear has been agreed upon. And they claim that, the, that these nations, well, maybe I'll read to you a sentence of two from, from the statements of the <laughs> Minister of Defense of Khamenei. Uh, we have broken the power of the United States with Moshti Ahanin, which is all the can you see here, there are all airplanes, tanks, and all kind of, uh, strangely, I didn't see Allah. Because usually the Moshti Ahanin is the, the, the arm of God. <coughs> Khamenei, uh, those who leveled sanctions against us yesterday are dying today because Iran has become the region's foremost military power. Revolutionary Guards website, Iran is becoming a power equal to America in the world. A defense minister, despite their great uh, pride, the regime of the arrogance set humbly behind, our behind the negotiation table and obeyed the rights of the Iranian nation. So rather than trying and change the policy, they continued uh, to uh, proceed with their regional ambitions and so on. And I said, it was, I think, this time of the year in 2015, few days before, before the implementation day. It was January 1st, I think, 2016. They captured American sailors in the Gulf, in the Persian Gulf, I would say. And uh, they really made mockery, humiliating the American soldiers and the people. They were doing all kinds of demonstrations, acting the capture of the sailors, I thought to bring you a few pictures, but I thought that it would be, I don't want to sp sp uh, spoil your good spirit and, and to see these pictures. It's not, you don't deserve to see the pictures. But the pictures were showing American naval uh, officer crying and uh, continuing to show it again and again. It's beyond what you expect for a country that you just have agreed on the major historical uh, agreement on the nuclear will. Uh, but America decided and stated, not by Trump, but before we'll come to Trump, under Obama, that he's willing to leave the region. Now, how you want to be the countries of the region to treat you if you say in advance that you are going home? And of course, the, uh, even President Trump did not retreat from this statement and claims that America wish is to go back, to go home. And I tell you, not all, not all Iranians hate America. They don't wake up in the morning and ask themselves how we can harm America, like how we can destroy Israel. They have better things to dream for. I heard from uh, someone who was one of the hostages, of uh, American hostages in the embassy in, uh, in Tehran. They said that during the early days of the revolution, there were graffitis on the walls of the American embassy. And one of them said, Yankees go home. And someone wrote under it, and take me with you. 
so it is no, but you know they they go and say that's America, and when they are thirsty, they want to drink Pepsi Cola. Sorry, it's not Coca Cola in the Middle East, but it's Pepsi Cola. So that's not uh, that they all hate, but I think that even if 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 Iran is regime is against you and you don't declare that you are willing to because it leaves your your uh, allies demoralized. And then Iran, as you know, Iranians are good politicians. I always thought that the combination of bazaar merchant and clerics makes a good politician. And I learned it not from Iran, I learned it from Jerusalem. We have in Israel some of them, the clerics who are even today running the state. Uh, and they are, they are uh, the Iranian tradition of running a state 25 centuries. There is no other country in the Middle East which has such a tradition. And Iran went to bring in Russia. Who could have imagined that Iran would be the country? And Iran, Iranians don't like the Russians more than the Americans. They fear Russia more than they fear America. That's true. But for Iran to go and bring Amer Russia into Syria, and I don't think that uh, Russia wants to see Iran nuclear. I think this is a convenient marriage for some time. But still, not only they brought Syria in, they allowed Russia in. They allowed Russian military airplanes to land in Hamadan in a base in Iran on their mission to attack in Syria and Iraq the, the Daesh. You know how long it lasted, this permission? I think two days. And not because of Israel, America, or others outcry. Because of their own people in parliament. We said this is most basic in our national uh, proud not to have foreign bases in, in, in Iran. But they, Russia's interests, uh, 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 I don't know if they re-inter, but they have been there all the time. But the current position of Russia in the region is crucial, has been crucial for saving the regime of Bashar al-Assad, is crucial for the Hezbollah, and is crucial for, for Israel and other elements in the country, including the Turks. Uh, but they are there. Israeli freedom of action in Syria has been significantly limited since the Russians have been there, and mainly since an um, uh, air, airplane of the Russians have been crushed, fired on by the Syrians over uh, the Golan Heights. So, and there is another uh, power base of Obama's presidency, that there was an alliance between United States and Europe on the issue of the nuclear weapon. This doesn't exist anymore today. So all these and more have really made, uh, made Iran very happy. You know, Iranians are not smiling people. I, was, I asked one of my students to do a study about pictures of Ayatollah Khomeini and find me some pictures of him smiling. I think one of them that he really smiled was the, the only one that I would take. It was the one that he, Arafat was the first leader who came to visit Iran and Khomeini was there in the embassy of Israel granting the embassy to Arafat. This love story didn't last more than a few months. But still when he kissed, uh, Khomeini kissed Arafat, I can see smile. 
Ayatollah Shariat Madari, the more moderate, was smiling all the time. There are different, you know, you have different rabbis, different priests, you have, you have some of them are. But a uh, few years ago, a lady in, in Oxford sent me a, a draft of her book, a kind of uh, sociological history of Iran. And I liked the, the opening, the preface. She said that the first time she, she traveled to Iran to do her study, she's of Iranian origin, but his, her Persian is not very good. So when she, she visited Iran, she took a cab from the airport to downtown, and in the traffic of Tehran, this may take a long time. Uh, and after a few minutes, the driver asked ask her, you are not, uh, Ira you are not, you don't live in Iran anymore, don't you? You say, no, but how do you know? He told her, you are smiling. And in Iran, <laughs> people don't smile these days. But look at the picture of Zarif. He is smiling all the way. Iran, for the first time, Shiism is, victor she is, is victorious. For the first time, Iran is expanding beyond their borders for many, many centuries. Forget the Achimenean uh, and the uh, Sasanians. But since the Safavids, Iran is on withdrawal. And all of the sudden, they are, they are uh, victorious. And with victory comes the euphoria. And I think I'm going from topic to topic, but I think that. Uh, I meant to say it when I speak about Israel, but I, I think that part of the problem that Israel has with Iran is because we are too similar to each other. Uh, Persian Shiites and Jews Israelis, uh, the, we are old, we, uh, we both think we are the chosen people. <laughs> and we have been all deprived in history. And more recently, we passed through a trauma, a major trauma. Now, I would not make any comparison between the Holocaust to any other trauma of any other nation. But while the Jews have survived, those who survived the Holocaust, the Iranians said the Iran-Iraq war. And it's remained as a trauma. And, and I heard Zarif saying, and I'm sure he learned it from Jewish history, when he said, never again, I knew it's coming from the Holocaust. Because they also think that they are under threat. And I think we should respect or understand, at least, that there is a nation that is fearful of what had happened and might happen again. And all of a sudden, we see Declare a doubt. This is, there, is, there is another similarity between us and them. We are both expecting the Messiah to come, of course, that's clear. But I think the main point I wanted to say here, there are many nations who don't know how to cope with failure. In the case of Israel and Iran, I think the two nations don't know how to cope with success. It happened to Israel in 67 that Israel did not know how to use the success, the success to achieve its real goal of independent Jewish democratic state in the Middle East. And it happened to Iran after the Islamic Revolution and even more after the nuclear deal. All of a the sudden, they thought that now they are sitting on the roof of the wall. They can do whatever they please. 
And here come, I, I don't want to say Ayatollah, President Trump, that brought him down to earth. And I don't want to interfere with his politics, but I think one thing good he has done. He confused the Iranians. <laughs> they don't know how to digest him. It's a big deal. No, it's not, I'm not saying jokingly. It's, it's really, they don't know how to, to deal with this situation. No matter what they say, they are strong, they are fearful, they are concerned. They know that they will have to pay price that they could not pay had they pursued uh, the peace process, uh, the nuclear deal. I don't know what could have happened if they had done it, but I think that if it, they really sincerely changed their policy, it would be, have been very difficult to retreat from this uh, agreement. Now, what I mean by, by losing their sense of proportions, there is a close friend of Ayatollah Khamenei. His name is Hujatul Islam Mehdi Taeb. And Mehdi Taeb comes in a statement and says that Syria is the 35th province of Iran. Now, I'm not sure you all know that Iran has only 31 provinces. <laughs> <laughs> so how come it became the 35th <laughs> province? Well, if you count Yemen and Iraq and Syria and Lebanon, it may be, and Lebanon, you, it may be. And it goes far, they said that if I had to choose between Khuzestan and Syria, Syria is more important than Khuzestan, this region that suffered so much during the Iran-Iraq war. So much Iranian blood was shed for protecting and retaking Khuzestan. Uh, and it's really very disturbing to many people. And the others go on more mildly, they say the same way, that, uh, that Syria is crucial. We, I, our dream is uh, from Babel Mandar to the Mediterranean, and some even say up to Gibraltar. And some mean it. And some, for, for uh, well, leave it to when speak about the nuclear, uh, nuclear weapon. I will come to it. But I think that this one set of statements. And the current basis of this is that Syria is the front line to defend Iran. If, they, if we lose Iran, if we lose Syria, we lose Iran. But if we lose Khuzestan, we are not going to lose Iran. That's the logic that they say, using their own words about it. It doesn't mean that all of them agree on it, but I think that this comes from close people to Khamenei. But this, if you Google Taeb, you will see many strange things that he said. So maybe this is one other of these strange things. But there is another school who views Iran as, now how could uh, Ben uh, translate it? Umm al-Qura. Iran studied uh, Arabic philosophy, philo Islamic philosophy. Umm al-Qura, huh? the, the motherland of Islam. Umm al-Qura is, Umm is mother, Qura is village, town, Umm al-Qura. Ramazani translated the citadel of Islam, the capital city of Islam, the center of universe. And the, what is this principle of Umm al-Qura? If there is a country or state, at that time there were not even states, that is being accepted as the motherland of Islam, it's good, translation of Professor Milani, 
So all Muslims are obliged to be faithful to the leader of this country. So if you say something, the president of Egypt or the king of Saudi Arabia are committed to follow his line. Go and tell it to the Arabs. I think Iran has exceeded uh, its grasp. And it's paying a much heavy price for, for its adventures outside the country. And there, are, there is criticism about it in Iran. Uh, and, and there is criticism about many other things in Iran. But I think that the idea that Iran should spend, I would say that in 10 years, if they continue to help Syria as they have today, it's, it's all the money that was unfreezed by the, by the, by the sanctions. It's billions of dollars a year from the, and they claim that they don't have money for medicine. For God's sake, pay the money to medicine and not to, to missiles to, to Syria. Who, who, you made the priorities. So uh, it also created close relations between Syria, between Israel and the Gulf states. The Prime Minister of Israel was in Oman. Well, in Oman, Israeli Prime Minister have been in the past. Sultan Kawuz has been more moderate than the other Gulfs. Qatar, on the one hand, they helped the Hamas, sending money to Israel to give to the Hamas. On the other, uh, 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 on the other hand, they welcome Israelis. But it's, uh, generally speaking, Israel is, is really in better relations with, the, with Saudi Arabia, with, uh, with uh, Qatar, with uh, uh, the Emirates, with Kuwait, with Oman, uh, and it's another uh, outcome of this, uh, of this uh, uh, deal. Uh, I do, I usually I, I leave a few minutes only for, to speak about Israel because I think that we all, you all know the relations, so to speak, between Iran and Israel. Iran and Israel have been very good friends until, until the Islamic Revolution. In the Jewish memory of, of uh, in the, in the memory of the Jewish people, Iran is good. You go to two periods, 25 centuries apart, Cyrus the Great and Muhammad Reza Shah Pahlavi. When I was in Iran, they called him Papa Levi, Father Levi, which is, uh, they even made him Jew, appear Jew. Uh, so these are the two, and people of Israel in the, in the 80s for sure, even later, they are, they are not really enemy of Iran. I was, last year I met Professor Milani in Los Angeles and I told him a story. When I was in the 80s, I was head of the Iranian Jewish Federation. Not that I was very happy about it, but <coughs> there were so many new immigrants and we wanted to help them to be absorbed and put them at universities. Iranian universities were shut down. Some of them came without certificates. So I thought that's my responsibility to help the young people. And then I gave a lecture in a synagogue in Hulon, near Tel Aviv, about uh, welcoming them to Israel and telling them all kind of wonderful stories about Israel, <coughs> legends about Israel, whatever. And then at the end of my talk, one of them raises his hand again, I want to ask a question, say, Professor Menashri, when do you think we can go back to our homeland, to Vatan? <laughs> I was so 
unhappy with this question. After 25 centuries, you came to your homeland. Now you are asking me when you can go to the homeland? So it's not the attachment of the Jews to Iran, to the culture of Iran. Uh, but uh, with the Islamic Revolution, I would say that ideologically they are against the Jewish state of Israel. Israel Jews don't have the right to have the state, certainly not uh, in the Middle East, of course not with Jerusalem and its capital. Uh, and. Uh, uh, you know, this is a struggle between absolute good and absolute bad. One of them has to be to collapse for the other to continue. Uh, ideologically, they are against, religiously speaking. But I claim also that they don't have interest to change. Israel is an easy, a convenient enemy for Iran. If you want to be the leader of the Muslim world, you must raise the flag of Jerusalem. So I Iran basically through Israel or animosity to Israel has established itself as, the, as a leading force in the Muslim world. Uh, uh, and then if you have criti if people criticize you for many years about the economy, you said Israel, if, or the Shah, it doesn't matter, we have to blame. But there has been limit how, ma how many years you can go on and say the economy of the, uh, the problem are because of, the, of, the, of Israel or the Shah. They have two statements that they say about the Israel, United States. They don't, they don't even sense how conflicting they are. On the one hand, they said America cannot do any damn thing. America cannot do any harm to us. On the other hand, they say all our problems are because of America. For God's sake, if they cannot do harm, well, how, how you, they harm you so much. So, I, that, that, but it's been in their mind that uh, they cannot do harm, but they have done uh, all kind of, uh, of things. Now, recently, I think that uh, the Israeli dilemma is what to do uh, with Iran. Uh, there is no dilemma in government uh, that Israel is the main enemy. Even today, when Israel has uh, 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 discovered the tunnels going from Lebanon into small, uh, it's not small, it's uh, relative to Tel Aviv, but it's a town in, in Israel, Metula and acted against it, the statement is Iran is, the, is responsible. Iran is responsible for everything, if they do or don't do. But today, Iran is on our borders with Syria, on our borders with Lebanon, on our borders with, with, with uh, Gaza, and in the West Bank with the Muslim uh, 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 Jihad al-Islami, Islamic Jihad. Uh, and uh, Prime Minister uh, Netanyahu has made a long mileage with these Iran issues. Uh, some of the statements I, d I cannot accept. For example, when he said uh, in Los Angeles, uh, I think in 2007, in a big conference of the Jewish federations, uh, that the year is 1938 and Iran is Germany. And uh, Ahmadinejad is Hitler in front of 5,000 people, and this was the, the, the mantra in his talk. I had the misfortune to speak after him, together with his chief political advisor, now his enemy, Professor uh, Uzi Arad, and I started my talk saying, ladies and gentlemen, there is, the year is not 1938, and Iran is not Germany. Why? Not because Ahmadinejad is nice, he's not. <coughs> but by confusing Nazi Germany, so often, we undermine the historical significance of the Holocaust. 
in my lifetime, I know I'm very old, but still, since World War II, Nasser, President Nasser was Hitler, Arafat was Hitler, Saddam Hussein was Hitler, Daesh is Nazi in Germany, uh, Ahmadinejad is Hitler. So what I'm going to tell my grandchildren, what was Nazi Germany all, in, all about? Now my family, direct family, parents' family have not been uh, really uh, annoyed by these Nazis. But the, 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 the family of my wife had been really demolished. When I got married and I asked my father-in-law, who on your side should we invite? He told me, I don't have any family. Not even a single person that he knew before the war, he still could see after the war. And only he passed away, after he passed away, we found a document in the Yad Vashem, in these archives, that he left it. He was married before and had a child. So why I'm, we have to mention it? <coughs> or uh, Iran's existential threat. After establishing the Center of Iranian Studies, I, I commissioned a survey, public opinion, about how Israelis f are fearful from the, this threat. I was astonished to find that one out of four young people say that if Iran will be nuclear, they will consider seriously leaving the country. That's what we want. I know the Silicon Valley are full of them regardless of the Holocaust or not Holocaust. But we give them the, to be proud that they can really threaten Israel, and we are frightening our children. Uh, so there are many, but, but I, was, I have to adhere, but, but Iran cannot tolerate Iran to be nuclear, for God's sake. I, when I heard Ahmadinejad in the UN in 2005, you know, the Iranians hate America, but uh, Iranian presidents will never uh, uh, spare an opportunity to visit New York, and they have only one chance a year to visit New York <laughs> during the General Assembly of the United Nations. There is always the president will be there. Ahmadinejad, he was just elected, he came to New York, he gave a talk, he went back and was discussing with an Ayatollah, I think it was Ayatollah Jannati. He was sitting on the floor and telling him about his experience in New York City in the UN. And honestly, I didn't believe what people told me that he said unless, until I saw the video. So in the 27 minutes that I was speaking in the UN, all eyes were glued to me. No one whispered, like Moses brought the book from the Sinai. He said, no one whispered, no one, this was the, Ma'amad Har Sinai, as we say in Hebrew. Uh, and this was, he said, people told me, my friend and my entourage told me, and I sensed it myself because there was a, a light behind my head with God protection. Thanks God, the light here is not <laughs> working. So, you know, people who speak in such a language, my dear friends, should not get close to the button that pressed the nuclear weapon, period. There's no argument about it. And Iran is not a, in the only situation that can have second tries is, uh, 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 to respond to this, uh, to, the, to this attack. So I think that as long as there are so many countries around us who, sp who speak about destruction of the state of Israel or wiping Israel out of the map, this is something that we should have. By the way, Israel needed it for protection. In 1973, and many people ask me, well, 
Uh, why Israel, that is claimed to have nuclear weapon, Israel never admitted, but let's assume, I hope they have. Uh, why Israel should have the right to have in Iran? No. I tell you, because Israel, Israel was it passed an exam from me, my point of opinion. In 1973, Egyptians and Syrians invaded Israel on Yom Kippur, the holiest of days in the Jewish calendar. Israel was, as our legendary defense minister, Moshe Dayan, said that it's, we, are, we, we are approaching to the collapse of the third temple. Two temples have been destroyed, and Israel is the third temple. Now, if, if he said so, and Israel did not really even threaten to use nuclear weapon, when we want to use this? Uh, and I think that the w at time that Iran, no one is threatening Iran. Israel is the only country that is being threatened to, to be destructed. I wish, having visited Hiroshima and Nagasaki, that uh, there will be no use again of the nuclear weapon whatsoever. But uh, in the case of Iran, I'm quite confident that with these messianic elements, that some of them even come to presidency, we should not uh, uh, allow them. So Iran is powerful, it's going ahead. Uh, how, how far they will go? I usually don't answer questions about the future, but here I can tell you they will go as much as the world will let them go. And the final word is, I don't subscribe to these people who think that uh, they, can, uh, they can lead to the collapse of the Islamic regime by here pressure here and pressure there. It may be done indirectly. I think that the only people who are capable of putting an end to this regime or significantly changing the policy of this regime are the people of Iran. Iran has a tradition, almost I would say. Uh, there was, uh, they have experienced popular uh, movements, revolutions, more than any other country in the Middle East. Iran is the only country in the Middle East when one of the few in the world with the two big revolutions in the 20th century, constitutional in 1906 and Islamic 1979. In between, they had before that, they had the tobacco movement, 1891, 92. Then they had uh, the Mossadegh, 51, 53. Then even under... Uh, under President Kennedy in the early 60s, some movement, and, and then the Islamic Revolution. Now, the question is, when this will erupt? And as an historian, I can tell you, no one knows. Now, of course, when this, ultimately, it, it is possible and likely that this will happen, and then some of your experts will say, I knew for sure, I knew, don't believe them. No one knows what leads the mass, the people of the country, march one day, start moving one day to make such a big revolution. No one expected the Russian Revolution to come, the French Revolution, uh, not even the American Revolution, if I may say so. Uh, we didn't expect even Sadat visiting Jerusalem. We didn't expect him to attack Israel in 73. We, there is a limit how much we can foresee the future. But this is will probably happen because the situation of the poor people is so bad. And let me, on the other hand, there are the, co the forces of suppression. And uh, 20, almost 20 years ago, in 1999, 
and I end with this. Uh, uh, in 1999, uh, an article by a leading ayatollah in the, in the newspaper Jame'e wrote, uh, wrote an article uh, and uh, asking the people to obey the true Islam and not cross certain red lines. And a young student responded a week later with an article, the title I liked very much, Pedar Jame'e Javanas, Father, the society, which is the name of the newspaper, Jame'e, is young. You tell us to obey true Islam, but what you tell us, who decides what is wrong Islam, what is true Islam, and who decides what, who is, what is what. But he says the problem is, is it's not that we are the young people crossing certain unidentified red lines. The problem is that you, the cleric, in the one straight street, you are driving against the flow of traffic. Those who have, have experience of driving in Iran, they know that you can do it for some time, but not, not always. Thank you.